Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Francis Fukuyama on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Origins of Political Order from Pre-Human Times to the French Revolution. When I was an undergraduate, I read Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws, And I found the book incredibly impressive because it took a disparate array of facts, facts stretching over centuries and great geographical distances, and it unified them in a single theory. Francis Fukuyama really achieves the same thing in The Origins of Political Order. He takes all of human history up to the French Revolution, at least its political aspects, and he tries to explain it by means of a relatively simple-to-understand theory. I won't go into the details because we go into the details in the interview. In any event, it's a very enlightening and a persuasive book. I think it's even an important book, given what's happening in the world today. I really enjoyed talking to Frank today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Frank. Hi, Marshall. Uh, How are you today? Uh, Good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Today we're talking with Frank Fukuyama about his new book, The Origins of Political Order, from pre-human times to the French Revolution. Uh, I've read the book and I liked it very much. It has a very 18th century feel, I should tell you. I'm a huge fan of Montesquieu, and Montesquieu kept coming to mind as I was reading this book, right down to little details, such as the wonderful, very short descriptions of what's going to be in the coming chapter. I thought that was a very charming, stylistic touch. But this is a book that has considerable substance, and I think that it should reach a a, a wide audience. I hope that it does at least. It's extraordinarily uh, readable. I've written a book like this, that is to say a book that I'm covered in extraordinary expanse of time, and my book, I can tell you, was not very readable. But this one, <laughs> this well, one, very much, my, uh, my book was turgid. No, yours, <laughs> yours flows very nicely. Yeah, uh, it, it, there were no, there were, there was. I think there's only one table in the whole book. Tables are sort of crutches for people that write very long-term history. I, I use a lot of them. I have to tell you. So anyway, Frank, why don't you begin the interview by telling us how you came to write this book and why you wrote it? Well, there were really two sources. Uh, one was Samuel Huntington, who was a teacher and mentor of mine when I was a graduate student. Uh, and uh, he asked me to write a new preface for his classic 1968 book, Political Order and Changing Societies. And I use this book quite a lot in my teaching, uh, and it occurred to me that it really needed to be updated because it was written shortly after the period of decolonization that had led to all these new emerging nations. And um, uh, among other things, on the very first page, it says the Soviet Union and the United States are equally developed political orders. And that just didn't sound right after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one um, source. It's, it's a very good book uh, in terms of understanding, for example, the Arab Spring uh, that's occurred this year because he argues, among other things, that revolutions are not made by the poor. Uh, they're made by rising me- middle classes whose expectations uh, are not met by the political system that they're living in. So that was one source. Uh, and then the other one is uh, my interest over the past decade uh, in uh, weak and failing states, which has obviously been a big aspect of American foreign policy. Uh, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, Somalia, Haiti, there's just a whole series of these uh, places where the international community has tried to intervene and where its interests in counterterrorism or you know alleviating poverty or you know any number of, of objectives uh, could be met if you could somehow produce strong coherent governments but uh, we you know we're not having very much uh, luck in in doing this uh, and so i've been thinking about the the question of how you how you build political institutions 
uh, and began to realize that part of the reason we don't understand this is that we don't understand where our own institutions come from. We live in societies where we're fortunate to have governments that work uh, reasonably. You know, we're always complaining about them and we're complaining about bureaucrats and unresponsive um officials, but in fact, uh, if you go to developing countries where government is much weaker, uh, many of the things that you can take for granted, like property rights and a functioning court system uh, and um, regulation of basic um, uh, uh, you know, drugs and stocks and this sort of thing, um, you know, all of these things we take for granted, but uh, you cannot uh, assume that they exist in uh, poor countries. And indeed, the reason that poor countries are poor is because they don't have these institutions. So all of this combined to uh, make me want to write a book about the origin of institutions. Uh, as a political scientist, you think that there'd be a place where you could go to read about this in your Politics 101 class, but I actually don't think there is such a thing. So I decided to try to write one on my own. Well, I think I think you've done a fine job, to be honest with you. You begin the book in a Again, I, I'm going back to the 18th century. You begin a book in, in a way that I think is um, absolutely correct. I guess I'm showing my hand about this book. The, um, you begin with human nature, and this is what uh, I guess we're in the 17th century, what Hobbes would have done or Montesquieu does as well. And you be, it, But it, it's informed by a Darwinianism, and it's really evolved human nature and how it informs political order. Maybe you could begin by talking a little bit about that. Well, sure. The human race uh, is actually pretty uniform uh, genetically. Um, a lot of population geneticists have been able to trace uh, the movements of human beings as they come out of Africa and spread to different parts of the world. And what that means, I think, is that biologically we share certain characteristics uh, across the species that uh, make uh, for certain consistent patterns of behavior uh, as we um, adapt to different environmental niches. So, of course, we have different cultures, we have different institutions that are the products of geography and environment and climate and uh, factors like that, but we also come to very similar solutions to problems of social organization because we are um, we're the same uh, biological creature underneath the surface. Now, in my view, there's really two important facts about human biology that are critical. The first is, well, uh, so the, the, the basic you know, background to this is that we are social uh, creatures by, um, uh, by our inherited or evolved um, genetic endowments. Uh, we are not isolated individuals. There's never been a period in human history uh, when we were simply hunkered down in our foxholes fighting one another and, and only later coming to live in civilization. Uh, and, and that's the reason why I spent a certain amount of time talking about chimpanzees and other primates, because the primates from which humans evolved also display these kinds of social characteristics. So one important principle is what the biologists call uh, kin selection or inclusive fitness, meaning that people are by nature uh, altruistic towards people with whom they share genes and in proportion to the number of genes they share, which is just another word for nepotism. Uh, we favor uh, family uh, over genetic strangers. And the second principle is the principle of reciprocal altruism, uh, which is a principle of exchange uh, on a face-to-face -face, uh, basis. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. And these are default forms of human sociability, meaning that you do not need to teach young children how to behave in this manner. They'll just do it, you know, uh, all by themselves. And in fact, it's the form, these are the forms of human sociability that will exist uh, if there are not institutions created to motivate people to behave differently. So in other words, friends and family, favoring of friends and family uh, is universal. Uh, it uh, is something that uh, we all come to uh, uh, more or less automatically. And so in some sense, when you're talking about creating something like a state, uh, you know, a large hierarchical centralized organization uh, that is recruiting people, uh, if it's a modern state, on the basis of uh, 
technical capacity or merit uh, or some principle of that sort, rather than friends and family, uh, you've got to explain how you create the incentives to overcome these natural instincts. Uh, so that's why I think uh, biology is an important starting point and it explains, I think, also the decay of political institutions because when those incentives to create modern institutions uh, wither or decay, uh, then friends and family as, a, as an organizing principle reasserts itself. There, there are a couple of other aspects of human nature that you mentioned that I, I also thought were quite apt as somebody that um, reads this biological literature quite a bit and literature on, on chimpanzee communities, for example, or bonobo communities. And one was uh, the origins of religion, really, in the ability to abstract causally. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I think that uh, this, in fact, is one of the things that distinguishes us from higher primates because they seem to have uh, only a rudimentary form of this capacity, but it's really the capacity to create uh, abstract mental models about the world and how the world works. Uh, so we do this all the time. We see the sun come up and we associate that with uh, you know, various good things, productivity, warmth, you know, ag agriculture, uh, and then we develop theories about how one thing in the natural world is related to another thing. Uh, and we are particularly good at creating uh, these causal models that relate to unseen forces. Uh, and I think this is really the, the origins of religion, uh, that we attribute causality to forces we can't see. Now, this may seem primitive, but in fact, modern natural science posits the existence of all sorts of unseen forces like gravity. Um, uh, Newtonian mechanics is really based on an invisible uh, set of, uh, you know, of, of, of forces. Uh, and, of course, the modern science is based on the scientific method and testing hypotheses and so forth. But human beings throughout their history have, you know, come up with these mental models to, uh, by which we try to manipulate the world. Uh, and in the case of religion, uh, it's an almost universal uh, human, uh, well, in fact, I would say categorically it's a universal uh, human uh, attribute to um, attach significance to spiritual or unseen forces uh, and to endow them with a kind of intrinsic uh, value as a basis of human morality and as a way of regulating human social uh, interactions. Uh, and so this is also, you know, obviously critical to the politics because what an institution is is a rule. It's a rule for how you cooperate with people. Uh, and oftentimes the rules are derived from uh, these mental models as when a priest must bless a king in order for the king to receive the legitimacy so that he can rule over his people. Uh, so again, this is something that you see in every culture. The content of these rules is obviously different from one culture to another, but the fact that we have rules uh, suggests that there's this underlying faculty for uh, for making uh, mental models and, and, and using them for social organization purposes. This ability to abstract causally then leads to norms of certain kinds. Um, and then you have some interesting things to say about norm following and, and what are sometimes called meta-norms. There have been some really interesting, actually experimental work done by economists of all people, behavioral economists, about meta-norms. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, that's right. So, you know, we, we need norms, obviously, in order to just get along. So if we didn't all in the United States drive on the right side, we <laughs> automobile accidents all the time. Uh, but we also have norms about norms. We have norms about how the proper, you know, what's the proper way to come up with norms. Uh, you know, should it be based on religion? Should it be based on uh, an exchange of favors, uh, you know, uh, and so forth? And what's interesting about human beings is that our emotions are very much tied to this. The economists, the problem with the way that the economists think about it is that they tend to posit that we're just these rational, selfish creatures and we're just always calculating our self-interest and we decide that it's in our interest to follow norms and, and that's why we, we follow rules. Uh, in fact, I think the the psychological process is considerably more complicated than that. Uh, oftentimes we follow rules not because we've calculated that it's in our self-interest to do so, but because we are conditioned to believe that or that we've invested the norms with a kind of emotional meaning and we feel extremely guilty if we violate the norms, even if it's in our self-interest to do so. I mean, classic cases, you know, why leave a tip 
for a waiter at a restaurant where you're never going to go to the restaurant again. Why not just try to stiff the waiter and walk out without paying? And I think the reason that we don't do that is that um, you know we we are socialized to behave in a certain way, and we feel bad if we've stiffed the waiter. So the behavioral economists, you're right, are, are now figuring out that their simple model of behavior doesn't work very well. Uh, and that people's emotions are very much uh, caught up in this, but it also means that people are interested—they're they're interested in seeing justice done, not just in their own cases, but you know they want to see it done in general. They—they they don't like it when somebody in the community gets away with murder, yeah. uh, and I think that that's really why there's such a pervasive interest in, you know, in crime shows or in Nancy Grace or in you know, uh, courtroom dramas uh, because. Uh, we do feel a great sense of satisfaction when the community is finally able to uh, catch the perpetrator and see that the uh, uh, justice is finally done in in in, in particular you know vivid cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've seen just a we've seen a vivid case like that just yesterday. In fact, uh, when Osama bin Laden was killed, some of the experiments that I was thinking about were uh, ones that involved what I think is called. Uh, altruistic punishment. You know, mm-hmm. you mentioned these in the book, and these are absolutely fascinating. These are cases in which people will punish other people who have not harmed them in a way that is costly to them, and this seems to be universal. So you see somebody else breaking a rule, and you punish them, even if it costs you, and that, that's a pretty remarkable thing, I think. Um, that is. And it is that kind of metanorm, and it is like kin selection and uh, religion, uh, a human universal. The the final one that you talk about, which I thought was most interesting, and I guess I I didn't um, I couldn't grasp fully. I guess I, I understood it intuitively. I think is the desire for recognition. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. So human beings have desires for things. That we want food, we want shelter, we want you know a nice car, um, but we also want um, uh, status. Uh, status may not be the right. In a way, it's it's a little bit too simple a concept to really uh, explain what recognition is. But we derive a tremendous amount of satisfaction from the fact that other people uh, recognize us at the worth that we think we we deserve, and we feel an extreme amount of anger when people disrespect us. Uh, and you know, if you think about it, a great deal of politics is about this politics of recognition. I mean, it's, it's really, of course, you know, politics is also about interests and defending your material interests and, and this sort of thing. But you think about, for example, the situation of Mohammed Bouazizi, who is this uh, Tunisian vegetable seller uh, who actually sparked the revolt in Tunisia that then went on to spark the Arab Spring uh, that we've been watching this this year. So what happened was he had a vegetable cart. It was confiscated several times by the police. Uh, he went to complain about this. Uh, he couldn't get any response. Finally, a policewoman slapped him and insulted his family. Uh, and then he, you know, in despair, he set himself on fire uh, and, and, and killed himself. And, and um, you know, so you, you say, well, what's in it, you know, for him? And I think if you think about what would actually drive you to suicide, it's not any kind of rational, you know, concern with, um, uh, you know, with with the value of his vegetable cart because, you know, if that's all he was worried about, why kill yourself over this? Uh, what he really um, felt despair over was the fact that the government was not treating him as a human being with dignity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, someone that you, you respect and you recognize, you have to give an answer to. You know, if, if they say, look, you, someone says, you, you took my vegetable cart, why did you do this? You owe that person an answer. Uh, and I think that this is really what drives a great deal of anger in politics. And sometimes that recognition is not for myself. Uh, sometimes it's for my religion. Sometimes it's for my nation. You know, I want to see my flag planted in the United Nations, and I want to see other people respect my country uh, in the way that I believe it, it's deser- it deserves to be respected. So identity politics, you know, a lot of the politics of race and class and, and gender, uh, I think, are really actually struggles about recognition rather than struggles over uh, material uh, benefits. And that so I think if you don't understand that dimension of politics, uh, you're actually missing a lot of what uh, people are actually fighting over. 
I was going to give some specific examples from American politics, but I will refrain. <laughs> um, actually, I won't refrain. I think people that I think there's a the modern atheist movement just does not give the proper respect to people that believe uh, in religion today, and I think it causes a huge amount of needless conflict. There, I just said it. <laughs> just needless conflict in the American polity. So basically, you're looking for uh, paths that various I, I don't know exactly what to call them. I guess civilizations we would have called them 50 years ago toward. A state, and that is a kind of a super familial entity, a, a bureaucratic or administrative entity, and then rule of law, and then the third is accountable government. And you trace the development or lack thereof in various, in, in these civilizational spheres. Um, before we go into that in particular, I, I want to ask the following question. You deal with it in the book, but I think it's interesting. We don't see a lot of Greece and Rome in this book. Why is that? Uh, well, it's no, uh, it's, it's not because these were not um, important civilizations, uh, but in, in some sense, the continuity of Western development was really disrupted with the fall of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. uh, and then with the coming of these barbarian tribes, the clock had to be reset. Mm -hmm. And there was, a, you know, there was then a new cycle of political development as you moved up from tribal societies to feudal to state-level ones. Uh, and that's the story that I tell in the book. Now, mm -hmm. the precedent of Greece and Rome was extremely important because Europeans could look back on Greek democracy or on Roman law. And in fact, I do tell the story of Roman law, the recovery of yeah. Roman law uh, under Gregory VII and the, you know, the investiture crisis, how the Catholic Church uh, used that to create uh, a modern form of uh, ecclesiastical law. Uh, but since that, con and, and, and I guess the, the further thing was uh, Greece and Rome were contemporaneous with the Qin and Han dynasties in China. Mm -hmm. And in my view, uh, in terms of the modernity of the state institutions, I think that the the Chinese really had these the Greeks and Romans uh, beat. Mm -hmm. uh, not in terms of democracy, because they didn't have democracy, but uh, in terms of a, an administrative system that was functionally organized, hierarchical, rational, uh, able to impose uniform laws over a very large uh, uh, political space. Uh, I think that you know the, the, the Greeks and Romans were much less systematic about this than the Chinese were. And mm -hmm. So that's really why uh, I begin with China rather than increase in Rome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. Well, I'm, it's, it's a refreshing choice, and I'm always glad to have places that, let's say, aren't in the European tradition brought into the discussion, because at one point in the book you say that it's very difficult to understand anything without comparison, and unfortunately we don't have very many cases, and I think we pretty much have to use them all. <laughs> to well, get anywhere. Right. <laughs> it's, it's not just that, you know, and, and I think a lot of the multicultural approaches that are popular these days are not honestly com um, yeah. comparative. Uh, you know, they want to make a political point. Uh, um, uh, but uh, I think that it's, you know, it's, it's important to see that these civilizations really do have different, uh, uh, you know, important differences. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I agree completely. So let's begin by talking about the, the origins and the development of the state. So we begin with humankind, with having these, these four elements that you talk about in human nature, kin selection, abstraction, religion, and metanorms and desire for recognition. And they begin in bands, very small groups, and they develop into larger groups. Why does this happen? The first... Uh, um, important transition is uh, from hunter-gatherer societies where you live in a group of maybe 20, 30 individuals, all of whom are very close relatives. You know, this is the way chimpanzees, contemporary chimpanzees mm -hmm. live. So then the first big step is to tribal societies. In a tribal society, you are organized according to uh, the tracing of descent to a common ancestor who may be dead for three, four, five generations. And the thing that that does is it vastly increases the scale uh, of social organization because all of a sudden you can regard yourself as a kinsman of you know in a in a in a tribal segment that maybe has you know 500 a thousand uh, people in it and they also scale up very quickly because all you have to do is push the ancestor back a couple of generations and all of a sudden you're now related to thousands of people mm -hmm. uh, and this is a universal form of, of social organizations in China India uh, the Middle East uh, European uh, Europeans the Greeks and Romans at one point were organized in this fashion uh, and so when you talk about the appearance of a state which is not tribal it is based on a centralized hierarchical a form of authority that uh, can really control uh, 
use force to control everything in, the, in its territory, uh, you have to see it against the background of how did this evolve out of a tribal uh, form of organization. And the answer to that, you know, in short, is uh, actually the same reason that tribal organizations evolved out of band-level ones. It's, it's military. Mm-hmm. That each one of these higher levels of complexity in organization produce better military uh, power. Uh, and so, therefore, you have this competitive process where someone invents the first state, uh, and then all of the other tribes are either uh, conquered by that state or themselves have to to develop state-like institutions in order to prevent themselves from being conquered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the kind of evolutionary process that you see uh, that eventually means that except for inaccessible mountains and deserts and jungles, you know, the whole world is now covered by state-level mm-hmm. uh, institutions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, I quite agree with that. It, it also brings up an interesting question, the degree to which political evolution on that level, and let's just talk about the state rather than rule of law and accountability of government, is an evolutionary process. Because as you point out in the book, it, it seems to be obviously so, because the two factors that define, I suppose, most essentially biological evolution are variety and, and then selection. That's right. And so you see these in human social evolution? Yeah, well, not only do you see it, it's it's hard to imagine how else <laughs> things could have worked. Uh, so uh, people try different forms of organization. Uh, some of them are better adapted to their environments uh, than others. Uh, and since there is constant competition among human groups for, you know, for pasture land, for economic resources, for women, for, you know, all sorts of things, uh, the, the, the forms of social organization that produce uh, greater effective deployable power tend to be the ones that win out over the end, in, in the end. And in fact, you know, the question is not whether this kind of political evolution happens. The, the real question is, why doesn't it happen more quickly, or why, you know, do you get these anomalies where you seem to have these maladapted institutions uh, that persist? And I think that's also an extremely important point because there is a, a stickiness to institutions in uh, uh, that comes precisely out of this tendency of human beings to invest the institutions themselves with a kind of intrinsic worth, mm-hmm. uh, for example, through religion, uh, so that the you know, the sultan is not just um, a secular leader, but he's also the leader of, you know, of the of the faithful. Uh, and that means that if he's not working so well and you need to get a new one, it's not that easy to get rid of him. And it, indeed, if the system isn't working that well, it's 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 hard to um, it's hard to reform it. And that I think is one of the sources of political decay because uh, if this were the biological world, you know, you just die out. Fairly well. In fact, in the political world, that's in effect what happens: that uh, a dysfunctional institution will survive for a certain period of time until it runs up against, uh, you know, a foe that that is more adaptable, and then uh, it gets snuffed out. To what extent can the transition from, I guess, tribal-level societies to state societies, and you trace it in the cases of China, India, the Middle East, and Europe, to what extent can it be simply described? as, well, let's put it baldly, tearing people away from their families? Well, I think that's, uh, in fact, one of the consistent themes that uh, you find in the state-building stories in all of these societies. So the the Chinese do it through basically meritocracy. They um, have to overcome this intense familism in Chinese society, uh, and they do it by essentially creating a modern civil service exam by which uh, you, you have to prove yourself by merit. And then when they assign an administrator uh, to a province, they make sure that they send them to a province that they haven't grown up in because they don't want that administrator to have uh, you know, personal connections uh, with the people over which he's, he's ruling. The most extreme uh, form of moving uh, people from their families was the Ottoman uh, and and uh, Abbasid uh, institution of military slavery. These two Middle Eastern regimes uh, were set in the midst of intensely tribal societies of Arabs and Turks, uh, and what they would do is simply capture... Well, the Ottomans, for example, would capture Christian children uh, in the Balkan provinces of the empire. They'd literally take them away from their families. They'd never see their families again. They'd raise them to be soldiers and administrators who could rise to the level of the Grand Vizier, the Prime Minister of uh, of the Ottoman Empire. 
Uh, but the whole point of this was to prevent them from uh, uh, having loyalties to their families that trump their loyalties to the sultan, to the state. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were not allowed to marry. They couldn't have children. And if they did have children, uh, the children were expelled into the, the rest of the population, and they could not inherit the status of the uh, of the parents. And again, this was to prevent um, a patrimonial corruption of the system from from sneaking in, because people will always, for biological reasons, want to favor their own mm -hmm. uh, children over over what's best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like the yeah the the. The Ottoman solution to this problem is like something out of science fiction, if you ask me. It is, yeah. <laughs> it's and it proved, to be a, it proved to be a historical dead end. Yeah. No other civilization was willing to create this kind of uh, cruel you know, system of, of slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was the basis of Ottoman power for many centuries. So, you, again, you mentioned China, India, the Middle East, uh, and, and then Europe. And we find that states actually develop reasonably quickly and pretty universally. Not so much with the, the rule of law. Let's move on to it. How, how does the rule of law, what is the rule of law? Because it's a little bit, it's kind of a confusing concept. At least I, I was, maybe with my limited capacity, had a little bit of trouble with it. What is the rule of law and how does it develop in the places that it develops? Well, I think that uh, there are many definitions of the rule of law, which is why it's a confusing concept. But the one I use... I'll take uh, that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that the, you know, the one that's politically important is it is a constraint on the executive, uh, that law constitutes a constraint. It, it's a source of rules that is higher than the will of the person that happens to be running the, the government, whether it's a president or a king or a prime minister. Uh, and so you don't have the rule of law if the king or the president just gets to make up rules on the fly, you know, whatever whatever he or she wants. Uh, and I think that the you know the dominant source of the rule of law historically has been religion, because uh, in many religious traditions uh, you have a hierarchy of religious officials, uh, priests or judges or interpreters of the law, scholars who uh, are not appointed by the government and who determine what the law is. Uh, and whose um, ability to make judgments, legal judgments, uh, gives uh, uh, the political authorities legitimacy. Uh, and so this existed in ancient Israel, it existed in the Christian tradition in the West, it exists in the world of Islam, uh, and it certainly exists in India, where the Brahmin class in India was a class of priests, and they were explicitly put uh, at a higher status than the Kshatriyas were the warriors who actually held uh, political power. And so for a warrior to be crowned a raja or a king, you had to go to the Brahmin to get uh, sanctification. Uh, and in fact, the only world civilization that didn't have rule of law in this sense was China, because China never really developed a transcendental religion and a class of uh, religious um, uh, authorities that were independent of the state. They were always under the heel of the emperor in, in the Chinese case. So. Um, so that's, I think, the historical uh, origin of the rule of law, but it gets the, 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 the furthest developed and at a very early point uh, in the West, and that's really because of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church uh, uh, declares independence in the 11th century uh, from the Holy Roman uh, Emperor and all of the princes that were in power in Europe at that point. These princes uh, then could appoint bishops uh, uh, and in fact could make and unmake popes, and you had a great um, um, uh, figure, historical figure, Gregory the Seventh, who led a papal party that first uh, declared internally celibacy of the priesthood for the Catholic Church to precisely um, um, undermine nepotism and, and uh, corruption uh, within the church, uh, and then fought a two-generation war with the uh, with the Holy Roman Emperor to win the right uh, for the, the church to win the right to appoint its own uh, priests and bishops. Uh, and at the end of this struggle, you get a settlement in which this is possible that the church is now able to be uh, a, an independent, autonomous uh, uh, institution. Uh, they codify. Uh, the Justinian Code, which they revive and teach in the great law school at Bologna, that then becomes the basis of the European continental civil law tradition. Uh, and in the some, in some sense, it was really the Catholic Church that becomes the first modern bureaucracy. Uh, and it's staffed by, uh, religious uh, people who 
because they cannot have families, cannot pass their benefices on to their children, and therefore are much more like modern uh, bureaucratic officials who serve at the pleasure uh, of the, uh, you know, of the hierarchy and not uh, people that have won this place and, and hold it for dynastic or family reasons. It seems to me that one of the lessons of the examples you give is that holding the idea of the rule of a law, that is that we're a society of laws and not men, as they would have put it in the 18th century, I think is not sufficient to get the rule of law. You also need, and again, to use another sort of stock phrase from political science, you also need what is really separation of powers, whatever powers those may be. Is that right? You need separation of powers and you need institutionalization. Uh, one of the great advantages that the West had was that you didn't have concentrated political power early on. It may have been for geographical reasons because Europe is much more cut up by forests and rivers and mountain ranges. But for whatever reason, you didn't have a single powerful state that could uh, break the church and, 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 and bend it to its own purposes. And this allowed the church to be uh, a separate institution that could appoint its own uh, um, uh, people and uh, make its own uh, make its own rules. Uh, and that institutionalization, I think, is really the reason why the rule of law was much more deeply embedded in the European tradition than in other parts of the world. Here's a, a question that occurred to me. Uh, if the Catholic Church is extraordinarily important for the genesis of the rule of law in the West, and, and I'm agreeing with you it is, is it the case that once the Catholic Church fades away in Northern Europe or is pushed out by Protestantism that this is a setback for the rule of law? Well, no, I think that that's that it shows the, the power of institutionalization because at that point uh, you actually had lawyers and judges and a whole hierarchy of judicial institutions that were originally uh, religious in character. Uh, and then over time, the basis uh, changes. Uh, so religion declines, and then it becomes secular rule, and then later it becomes nation and democracy that is the source of law. But all this time, you've still got lawyers that are being trained in law schools, uh, and it's actually easier to shift the basis of legitimation from one source to another than it is to dismantle the institution. And so I think uh, you know that's why you have the persistence of a very strong legal tradition uh, in the West. The in a sense, one of the great tragedies of modernization in non-Western societies is that the confrontation with the West undermined the legitimacy of traditional law in India, in the Arab world, in um, uh, other uh, non-Western, uh, in, in China as well. Uh, and then they had to play this uh, catch-up game of trying to import um, Western legal doctrines uh, or uh, you know, uh, suffered a break in the continuity of their own legal uh, traditions. And that's why I think the rule of law is uh, tends to be very weak in, in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Let's see what you mean. I think you do a good job of um, pointing out as well that the uh, a good counterexample right across the kind of cultural border is, um, is Russia itself, and I guess also the Byzantine Empire, where uh, the tradition of uh, clerical independence... Um, uh, never developed at all. In the Russian case, it, it truly didn't develop, and therefore, and you see very real, little rule of law at any time in in Russian history. Although they did right. and that, yeah, go ahead. And and that I think uh, proves that it's not Christianity yes, as a doctrine right. yeah. that was important. It was really the the institutional independence of the church that was what laid the basis for the rule of law. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say again these these 18th century political scientists were very very smart people. They, they, they institutionalized this in our constitution. The, so let's go on to talk about accountable government. This seems to be the thing that is hardest to achieve uh, and most rare. How does it develop? Well, it's a kind of historical accident in many ways. Uh, in every medieval European country, you had a feudal institution that was called a parliament in England, a sovereign court in France, a Cortes in Spain, a diet in Poland and Hungary. Uh, and kings felt that they had to go to get permission, especially for raising taxes to these bodies. And then in the late 16th and 17th centuries, uh, you get a bunch of European monarchs that now want to behave like Chinese emperors and centralize power, create modern bureaucracies, uh, uh, 
administer their territories with uniform laws. And what's standing in the way of this are these estates. And so every one of these monarchs fights a protracted struggle to take away the powers of the estates. And it works almost everywhere uh, in Europe uh, where you get the rise of absolutist governments of various sorts, except for one country, and that is uh, England, where the parliament uh, for various peculiar reasons peculiar to English uh, national development uh, is very strong and cohesive. It raises an army, it fights the king, it chops off the head of one king, Charles I. Uh, it goes on to unseat another king, James II, and bring in uh, William of Orange from Holland uh, and set him on the throne. Uh, this is a glorious revolution that then resulted in the principle of parliamentary sovereignty and the fact that kings could not act without the consent of parliament and that they in particular could not uh, tax without uh, representation. Uh, and so in some sense, the, the, the principles that underlay the American uh, revolution and constitutional system were the direct byproducts of the fact that the English Parliament had enough solidarity to resist the king, whereas in Spain or in France, or particularly in Russia uh, and places further to the east, uh, these these estates or these these feudal institutions were completely crushed and and um, uh, made impotent. I was going to put in a plug for my favorite unknown but should be famous social scientist, and that is Otto Hinza. Uh -huh. um, and you mentioned him in the book, and I was so happy to see his name. Anybody that's interested in this kind of thing, this kind of comparative constitutional development, should read Hinze, his late 19th, early 20th century German fellow, uh, overshadowed by Weber and all. And then he has successors that people have heard of, uh, Charles Tilly is one, and, and you mentioned Tom Ertman's uh, work as well mm -hmm. in, in this sphere, and, and, and both of them are, are really are really terrific. Once a, accountable government is is established someplace, does it prove to be one of these comparative advantages? In other words, is this a kind of variation? that is selected for? And this goes to the point of uh, expanding democratization. Well, I think it does. Uh, it um, allows more people to participate and, and, you know, in that sense, grants uh, ever-increasing numbers of people uh, rec recognition for their citizen, you know, personhood as, as citizens. Uh, but it's also important in the development of a capitalist economy because mm -hmm. once the government is limited in terms of what it can do in terms of taking people's private property, uh, it means that property rights are better established and this becomes a basis of uh, a growing commercial class and bourgeoisie that then, uh, you know, powers the industrial revolution and leads to the subsequent development of uh, these extraordinarily rich societies after uh, 1800. Now, this is past the point that my book, uh, the which is the first volume of a two-volume uh, set. Um, uh, you know, the first volume ends before all of this uh, happens, but clearly the development of that capitalist economy wouldn't have occurred uh, without these kinds of constraints on executive power. So we'll, we'll look forward to that second. I quite agree with you about all of that. We'll look forward to the second volume. I, I want to ask a couple of more general questions about the book that I think might be interesting to people. Uh, one is about the role of ideas. It seems to me, reading the book, that many of the developments you talk about, especially the later developments, occurred because somebody had a very good idea and was able to actually put it into practice. And this adds an additional theoretical weight to any of us who think about these things, because then we have to have a theory of the generation of ideas. Um, which, which uh, I, yeah, that I don't right, know. Which we don't have. Which we don't. Really, I'm very skeptical of <laughs> yeah. generate such a theory. I, I don't know, but maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, the or, uh, about the role of of ideas in 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 the development of uh, the state and, the, and and rule of law and then the counter well, sure. government. Yeah. No, I mean ideas pervade um, social organizations. So going all the way back to tribal organizations, uh, you know, you have this idea that you're. Uh, you owe allegiance to a long dead ancestor, in many cases one you've never seen because he's been dead for three or four generations, and that's what generates a tribal society. So that's a, you know, ancestor worship is, is one of the earliest ideas that generates a certain form of social organization. But in later years, you know, the Arab tribes uh, had been living uh, at the margins of, of Roman and or Frankish uh, and, and uh, Byzantine civilization, Persian civilization. They were completely inconsequential until the prophet Muhammad invents a new, well, he's a prophet of a new religion uh, that then um, uh, unifies these tribes and allows them to conquer the Persian Empire and much of the Mediterranean uh, world. Uh, there's a one final example uh, later in the book, uh, which has to do with Denmark and Sweden, uh, when 
their kings declared Lutheranism uh, as the state religion after the Reformation, uh, it turned out that priests, uh, Lutheran priests, wanted to teach peasants how to read uh, so that they could read the, the lesser catechism uh, and then read the Bible on their own. This was uh, important in, in, you know, in Protestant doctrine, that you have direct access to the Word of God. Uh, and this had this enormous byproduct of, by the end of the 18th century, uh, creating an almost completely literate peasantry, which then became the basis in the 19th century for demands for democracy. Mm -hmm. And if you compare them to the almost completely illiterate Russian peasantry that mm -hmm. were inert and largely victimized, it, it, it had a tremendous impact on uh, the you know the democratic development of Scandinavia on the one hand and the uh, very um, uh, you know absolutist kinds of politics that emerged in um, in Russia. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the reason the reason I mention this is that if we don't have a theory of the generation of ideas, which we certainly do not, um, no disrespect to my uh, friends in intellectual history. Uh, it adds a certain randomness to the theory, and it's almost as if it's like the role of genetic mutation in evolution, that these things occur unpredictably, and where they occur, they can have a massive effect. And also then this, if this is true, and I'd like to hear what you say about it, this um, removes any notion of a kind of determinism from the progression of steps toward, if we can even call it a progression, the state, rule of law, and accountable government. Uh, well, that's right. I think, uh, you know, Max Weber, uh, in a sense, understood that uh, ideas, religious ideas, work kind of like a roll of the dice, uh, and you couldn't really predict um, uh, when they would emerge. I think his whole concept of charismatic authority was basically a way of saying, okay, I give up, you know, Sometimes you have these individuals with charismatic authority. We don't really know uh, where they come from and why it's charismatic to people at that particular point. Uh, so you have to take it, uh, you know, in social science terms as a kind of independent variable that's just a given. Uh, and then, you know, you can trace the consequences, but you can't really explain uh, the independent variable itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we'll see. I mean, I, I think that maybe someday people will try, you know, and people have tried to come up with theories of ideas. And in fact, the Marxists believe that ideas yeah. are simply epiphenomenal, that they were just the result of people's material interests. But yeah. I just think that if you think through carefully a lot of the ideas that have had a big impact uh, to try to uh, give an economic interpretation to every single one of them, I just think is a fool's errand. I mean, you're, you're never really going to explain the world in, in those terms. Yeah. But I mean, in, in, um, in fairness to the Marxists, at least they had a testable theory. I mean, oh, that's, that's really, and, and we got to give, you know, that, that's progress when you can say something is wrong. Um, and the reason I mentioned all this is because, you know, it um, reminds me of a conversation that I had with Jared Diamond once. And in Diamond's uh, estimation, this is in Gun, Germs, and Teal, of course, that uh, the, the reason uh, for the rise of the West, and perhaps I'm anticipating things that will be in the second volume of, of this uh, uh, two-volume work, the reasons for the rise of the West have to do with uh, a kind of a head start and a geographic accident that peoples of the ancient world had. And that it kind of could have been predicted from, I don't know, 3,000 years ago that this is the way That's it would right. have ended yeah. up. Yeah, Ian Morris has written a book comparing uh, the West and, and China uh, where he you know, makes a similar kind of argument that, that it's largely the result of, of geography and these material factors. Uh, I just think that that's missing something about the nature of development because something happened with the invention of the scientific method in Europe and you know the growth of universities and the you know the scientific testing of hypotheses that obviously you know then made possible the whole revolution in science and technology that was the basis of the industrial revolution and that didn't just happen everywhere it, it, it happened in one particular part of the world then spread once you know once it became clear how valuable this technique was but i do think that it was kind of an accident well i mean not an accident but it it it, it really was the product of certain particular historical conditions that prevailed in one part of the world and didn't exist in others. Yeah, I, I think that, and especially when you throw in the randomness, as you put it, the role of the dice of ideas, it makes the entire system somewhat chaotic in the technical sense of, you know, minor variations can produce tremendously different different, right. different results. And, you know, I think for any historian who has thought about Europe in 900 and who knows anything about what was going on in other places, let's say in China or India or the Middle East in 900, Europe was more than a backwater. I mean, it was no place. <laughs> it really wasn't even on the map. 
I mean, it, right. it, it just, it, there was nobody who could do anything there of any great sophistication outside a few, I don't know, uh, Irish monks. That's right. And, and, and to think that you could stand in the north coast of I Ireland in 900 and say, in a thousand years, we'll rule the world. <laughs> 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 it's, it's absolutely preposterous to me. I just don't. It's uh, it it's just really yeah. I I just don't know. And also, if you think about, it, I mean, there's some amazing cases in which very small nations that are not well developed at all have, by means of just a few ideas and sort of mm -hmm. resolved by organized interests, grown to world powers. I think the case of Japan, mm -hmm. that really went from nothing to a major world power in in, in a couple of generations. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and, and and they did it on the basis of really some kind of good ideas about management and and how to run things, uh, and ideas that we still admire today. So, well, anyway, let me ask one final question before I, I let you go. We are kind of running out of time. Imagine I'm the uh, um, a member of the ruling class of Syria or someplace like that, someplace that is uh, I won't call it a failed state, but it's an authoritarian state. It's a not exactly. Um, it is a state that may not have the rule of law. It's definitely not accountable. And I'm reading your book. I've read your book. What lesson should I take away? Well, I think that uh, all of these countries in in the long run need to ask whether power can really uh, originate out of um, a system that has no legitimacy. Uh, I think that uh, one of the great advantages that the English parliament had after 1688 was the fact that it could tax legitimately and Britain you know grew to be a world power because it actually had the consent of the people uh, you know of, of England uh, behind it uh, if you have a minority regime that is regarded with suspicion and distrust and outright hatred by you know 80 90 percent of the population you may be able to stay in power and you know, protect yourself and your family, but your country is never actually going to be, uh, is never going to amount to anything under those circumstances. So legitimacy uh, makes a great deal of difference, and in today's world, it appears that democratic legitimacy is really pretty much the only form of legitimacy that people take seriously. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think that's exactly right. The writing is on the wall. The only legitimate governments today are democratic governments. And I, I have to imagine that uh, the people that run these um, authoritarian places know that. But you've reminded me of an anecdote that I um, – this is back in the 80s when I was first going to the Soviet Union. And I tried to explain to my Russian friends that every year Americans of their own free will fill out a lot of forms and then send money to the government. <laughs> Right. And these Russians just could not understand that. They, they didn't understand why anybody would do that. Right. Right. <laughs> and, you know, even Europeans today don't quite get that, you know, with the VAT and all. They're not quite mm -hmm. yeah, so. So anyway, it's been great to talk to you today, Frank. I, I've really appreciated your time. Well, why don't we close the interview with, in our traditional way by asking you um, what you're working on now? Well, I'm working on volume two. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. I've yeah. covered the last 200 years, and that's a... Uh, that's a tall order. It's a tall order, partly because it's it's much better known than the first, you know, ten thousand years. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one of the problems that I'm going to face is how to tell the story of political development since the French Revolution in a way that won't seem completely obvious or, mm -hmm. you know, trivial. So that's what I'm working on. Well, if you do it in the way that you've done it in this fine book, I don't think you'll have any problem because, really, this is a tremendously readable book. Uh, Again, I, I um, not, not to wax too biographical, but I did try to write a popular book once. I failed utterly. <laughs> I, I, too many footnotes. That was my problem. I couldn't get away from the footnote, but you have. So you have a real gift for expression, and we're, we're very fortunate to have you writing books like this. So in any event, Frank Fukuyama, thanks for being on the show. Okay, thank you very okay, much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Francis Fukuyama about his new book, The Origins of Political Order, from pre-human times to the French Revolution. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.